All right. So we are walking through uh, a brand new series, really doing this at all three of our campuses. So from time to time, about three or four times a year, we do what's called a Together series, which is one we're doing across all three of our campuses. And so uh, this is one of those because it's something that we think is important. And I think it's actually going to tie in really, really well to where we've been the last two weeks as we talk about what it means to be the local church. So we're going to talk about um, this, uh, what we're calling everyday mission, live life with urgency and intention. Um, so before we get there, I got to tell you about one of my favorite people in the world. She was my high school science teacher. Probably not what you expected me to say, right? Um, but man, we had such a good, Miss Edge was such a good science teacher. Um, I honestly think she, like, if there was some way to gauge, like, to rank science teachers in the world, she would have been top five. Like, I don't, I don't even, it's not even close, I don't think. Um, she had this way about it. She was really quiet, really meek. But man, she could command a room. And she could also make a high schooler laugh which is a tough thing to do because high schoolers are jerks. And uh, I was one too when I was that age. So if you're in high school, get over it. You will too, okay? Um, But the thing that she was so good at um, is something that like, so I don't, I don't, I'll still remember some of the science things she taught me, which is weird. Um, But she taught them in such a way that they stuck with me, like these little rhyming ways to memorize stuff. But I don't, I don't do a lot with that. Can I be honest with you? Sorry if you're a science teacher. I don't do a lot with that biology, that chemistry that I took with her. But one thing that I do that I actually did learn a a lot from her and from other good teachers that I still put into practice, I hope (laughs) hope you see it. She was really good at taking this really super intimidating thing, this big idea, this huge learning objective, like memorize all 208 bones in the body. I think it's 208. I don't remember that from science, right? So like, I don't, like, how would you do that? A high school kid goes, no, I can't do that. Miss Edge had a way of doing it, of breaking it down, classifying different things, memorizing. She had these weird ways of helping us memorize it. We did that, uh, memorizing the periodic table, the parts of the nervous system. Those are things that to a high school kid are going to be really intimidating, but she had this way of breaking it down and making it so understandable. Um, she took these heavy learning, learning objectives and made them doable, made them seem at least doable to us. Now, that's what we're trying to do over the next three weeks. Because for whatever reason, sharing your faith with other people, like evangelism, the big churchy word that we use, is super intimidating to a lot of Christians. It's this big intimidating task that we're, that for whatever reason, like we're afraid of or whatever it is. And so we just don't do it. But what I want to do is try to misedge the fire out of that thing and actually break it down over the next three weeks and show you what sharing Jesus actually is at its most basic level. We're going to take it kind of in three parts. And hopefully at the end of that, you go, oh, I can do that. That's the hope. Amen? All right. That's enough about misedge. Let's talk about Jesus. If you got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at three words um, over the next three weeks, the first one we're going to look at is the word identify. We believe this is the first step in sharing your faith. Uh, it's what we're, we're preaching to all three campuses today, identify. Okay. So Matthew chapter nine, beginning in verse nine, the word of the Lord says that I'm going to, I'm going to read this and I'm going to pray and then we'll come back and talk about it some more. Uh, Matthew nine, nine through 13, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. 
While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when they heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. Uh, for your word, God, we thank you for what it means for us, God. We thank you for the challenges that we see in Scripture, God, that uh, that are oftentimes bigger than we are and and scary for us. But, God, we know that in Christ and through the work of the Spirit in us, God, we can accomplish these things, um, that the, these, these, these challenges, God, are actually promises of yours, that if we'll be faithful, God, that we'll see fruit. And so, God, as the next three weeks we talk about sharing our faith, sharing Jesus, God, I pray that, uh, that you would just make it come alive in us and God stir the spirit within us to be faithful to do this thing that you've called us to do. So God, today, uh, teach us to know more about who you are and your character and your goodness. And God, be with us as we study and help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I have always loved the story of Matthew. Um, and, and for what, I don't know why, maybe it's because Matthew's a math person. Probably if he's working in the tax office, he's probably a weird math, weird math people in the room. There's a few of us. There's some of you pointing at your spouse um, who wasn't raising their hand. No fingers, Jason. And uh, but that was me. I'm, I'm a math, math just came easy for me. Reading didn't. Like I struggle to read still today. Y'all get to witness that. Um, but thank you. Um, but for 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 Matthew, maybe it, maybe it's just this connection. But also I love it because verse nine. Did you catch that when I read it? As Jesus went off from there, he saw a man named Matthew sent in the tax office. What did Jesus say to him? Two words. Follow me. And like then we get this long dis- discourse, right, of Matthew wrestling with life decisions about whether he's going to follow Jesus or not, right? No. <laughs> and again, we, we don't know, but it says he got up and followed him. Like, I love that. Jesus said, follow me, and he said, sure, okay, let's go. Now, but it's important to note that Jesus, to Matthew, Jesus is not just some stranger here. Because you can see that, you can read that and go, man, Matthew's really trusting like some random guy just walks by and says, follow me. And he says, okay. And he just starts following. Like that's not what we're supposed to get from the text. Because by this point in Jesus's ministry, Jesus is not just some random stranger. He's a young rabbi who is developing quite a following. He, he's, he's already performed miracles by this point. He has already uh, been well known as a unique teacher. So Matthew has probably no doubt heard of Jesus. But what's interesting is that Matthew is in no way, hear me when I say that, Matthew is in no way the clientele for Jesus. Like he's not, when Jesus looks around at all of the surrounding area and all the people walking around in the market that day, no other rabbi would have said, that guy over there, that's the one I want. Nobody would have done that. He was not in this. When Jesus came up and spoke to Matthew, it would have seemed completely out of the blue and probably a little bit confusing because Matthew was a what? Tax collector. A tax collector. He was most, he was hated by most of the Jews. At this time in human history, you got to recognize the Romans owned everything. They even owned the promised land that God, the land that God had promised to Abraham that was going to be their descendants, that they were going to own that piece of dirt that is the focus of most of the Old Testament. The Romans own that too. So the Jews are living in, in this land, but they don't own it. They're not, they're not, they're not free. They're living under the rule of Rome. 
And one of the forms of power that Rome exercised was their ability to uh, exercise or to uh, excise. Eh, anyway, to take up taxes in whatever way they saw fit. There was no votes. There was no elections. It was here's what the tax is going to be. And to make matters worse, listen, to make matters worse, they would hire local people to serve as the tax collectors in particular regions, right? So Matthew is from this area. He's, he's there because who better knows the people? Who better knows the drama? Who better knows the backstories to help Rome milk as much tax from the people as they can, right? The role of a tax collector was in many ways not a lucrative life. <laughs> the tax collectors in the Jewish region would have also been Jewish as Matthew was, and they were viewed as traitors to their own people. But at least they have a good relationship with Rome, right? Because they're doing their job. That ain't good either. Because these tax collectors were still, Matthew was still just a Jew. He was not worthy of the friendship or honor that's why some collect some tax collectors just went ahead and gouged the price even more. So they would say, uh, so Rome says you need this much, but I'm actually going to charge you this much, and I'm going to pocket the rest. Because if you're going to be hated by everybody, you might as well make bank while you're doing it, right? That was the view of the tax collectors. If I'm going to be hated, let's go on and get a little something, something for my trouble here. Like that, that was the that was the thing. And all of this is why most tax collectors hung out together and hung out with people that society viewed lower class because they didn't have anybody else. They couldn't go into, they couldn't talk with Jews who were faithful, like the, the religious leaders that we're going to see here in a minute. They, they, they had no connection with them. And listen, this is who Matthew was. Right? Like we look at Matthew and we see him as a tax collector. We're okay, and, he, and Jesus called him to follow him. Listen, like we've got to put ourselves in the text. We've got to recognize who Matthew is. He sat in a booth day after day after day collecting taxes from his own people, being hated by his own community. Everyone knew where his booth was. Everybody passed it on the way to the market. But no one was approaching Matthew to talk about politics, to talk about sports, to talk about the weather, to talk about... Whatever. Taxes. Whatever the case. Countless Jews would have come by his booth and never engaged with him at any level. Maybe even rabbis would pass by and turn their head to avoid eye contact. But on this day, church, on this day, this young, hotshot new rabbi who's creating a buzz for himself passes by one day and does something that no other rabbi had probably ever done before, turns his eyes to Matthew and begins to speak. And Matthew, more than likely, sees him and goes, here comes a scolding, right? If you're hated by the people and, and you know that what you're doing is wrong, what you're, expecting from Je- what you're expecting from Jesus, who knows the Old Testament, you're expecting to get raked over the coals. Here he goes. He's fixing to tell me what the Torah says, and he's fixing to tell me what Proverbs says, and he's fixing to just dip, 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 and lay it all out and go for it. And instead, Jesus invites him to become a disciple. Man. This is no doubt why Matthew says, yes, and gets up. It's more than likely, he was blown away. 
This interaction with Matthew is rooted in a very clear and beautiful truth that we've got to grasp first before we go anywhere else because Jesus understood something. Jesus understood. I'm going to give you three statements today and maybe some sub points along the way, but three statements that have to drive our willingness to share Jesus. If you're having trouble sharing Jesus with other people, these three statements should be the kick in the pants and the encouragement you need to begin to do it. Okay, the first one is this. Jesus recognized something we need to recognize is that I've got what you need. If you're taking notes, write that down. So when Jesus approaches Matthew to speak to him, He's doing so in this vein. Matthew, Jesus knows more than, more than we would if we were talking to Matthew. But Jesus knows that Matthew has deficiency. He's knows, he knows that Matthew is, a, is a, a sinful human being who has certain spiritual needs. And Jesus knows, I have got what you need. But do you not see, church, that we have that same answer? We've got to take on this mentality that when we engage with people that we recognize, I've got what you need. But it's going to take a couple of things. The first thing, it's going to take caring. It takes caring to recognize, I've got what you need. Jesus here, listen to this, Jesus is moving about his day. Now, we don't know what kind of guy Jesus was. We don't know if he kept a calendar. We don't know if he kept like a smartphone app that told him what he needed to do each day. But we're assuming Jesus oftentimes, most of the time, probably had tasks to do because he was, in a very real way, a normal human being. Right? He, was, he had places to go. He had people to see. He had a life that he was living. He had things he was trying to get done on this day. But here, Jesus takes the moment to notice someone in the background of his life. I've already made this statement, but I want to ask you a question. How many Jews passed by Matthew that week? A bunch. I'll use that accounting word from last week. A bunch. I mean, countless. How many rabbis had passed by Matthew that week? Probably not a bunch. There probably been some. The Jews and the rabbis were passing by Matthew daily without any acknowledgement that there was there. He was simply playing a part in the background of their life. He was there doing. His thing every day as they passed by him on the way to do their thing. And y'all, the same is true for Jesus. We don't know how many times Jesus has passed by this booth at this point. But this time it was different. Jesus takes the moment to turn aside from the busyness of his day and to care about Matthew. As you think about your day, as you think about your life and your own busyness, let me ask you a question. How many background people do you have in your life? I'll use that in air quotes. That'll help. Background people. Like how many people do you pass by every day? The person that gives you your biscuit at the gas station. Because gas stations just have the best biscuits. I know about three of y'all agree with me. That's good. Don't knock it till you try it, y'all. Some of them have the best biscuits. <laughs> We're live streaming. I can't mention names. Um, right, like the person that works at the counter of the 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 business, the wall, the place you go into, the all of the, the how many people would be in the credits of your life that you don't even that you're not even paying attention to? How many people are working in the background of your life? How many people do we pass by on extreme regularity, but never engage with much? Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you got to be Buddy the Elf. Do y'all know who Buddy the Elf is? 
But the elf's an annoying person. Y'all remember the movie? He's like stopping every single person on the street to try to cheer him up. I'm not telling you you have to be that. If God calls you to be that, be that. But be careful. <laughs> um, but I am saying, I think from the, I think from this, not just this text, but other places that there is a standard that is set that we have to take time to notice the people in the background of our lives. We need to care about them at some level. And the only way we're going to recognize that we've got what they need is if we care about the need that they do have. What's interesting is Matthew wasn't just like a, a, a guy in the background. He wasn't just a guy on the list of credits. He was the antagonist. He was the bad guy in the play, right? He was hated. Most people, most people ignored him or avoided him because of hate, but Jesus instead approached him out of love and care. And if you don't hear anything else, go to sleep after this statement. Jesus is teaching us here that rather move away from a sinner, we need to move towards them with purpose. Instead of moving away from sinners, we need to move towards them with intentionality and purpose. You see, it takes care to share our faith. We have to acknowledge that the person has a need and it's worth addressing. We have to be willing to help them with that. We've got to acknowledge that they're there in our life and the flip side of that. So there's this caring that has to happen for us to, to acknowledge that we've got what they need. But that statement, I've got what you need, should also bring confidence, right? That's point number B, A, 1B, 2B, whatever we are. It brings confidence. You actually know what they need. Listen, companies pay a ton of money to survey and marketing firms to find out who wants their product. You know that, right? They pay millions of dollars to help them identify people in the area who need their products. Why? Because it makes it a lot easier. I'm going to give you a sketchy example, and then I'm going to clarify at the end. All right? For some reason, I thought of door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesmen. So I remember watching Andy Griffith and knowing that that was what Barney did when he quit the police force for a while. He went to sell vacuum cleaners, and he had trouble with it. And, t- and I just thought it was a TV show thing until one showed up. And if, and if that's what you do, like, I just, sorry, I didn't know that that was a thing. But like, I remember we were at our house in West Limestone before we moved over back to Ardmore. And like a guy came by our house and he was like, Hey, can I sell you a vacuum cleaner? <laughs> we were like, I was like, it's Barney five. Like, I didn't know this was a thing. Like, this is so cool. But here's, here's what's so hard about that job though. And any door to door salesman like that, they have to go to every door and try to convince the person inside that they need the vacuum cleaner, right? But here's what they don't know. They don't know a lot of things. But one of the things that they don't know that would be super important for them to know is whether they even need a vacuum cleaner, right? (laughs) Some of them already have a good vacuum cleaner that costs more than and was more powerful and more good, better. It's better than the one the guy's even selling, But what if the salesman knew what doors to approach because the people inside were in need of a vacuum cleaner? Wouldn't that change the game? That dude wouldn't go up to the door and go, here it goes again. You know, like he would go up with confidence because he knows that the person inside has a real need. Now, once they come to the door, he's still got to sell them on it. Like they still can say, Hey, uh, man, that price is way too high. I'm not paying that for a vacuum cleaner. I ain't never paid that for a vacuum cleaner. I ain't starting today. 
Okay, they still they still get a no. They could still get a hey man, I really like a brand. I used Hoover in the first service. Does it still make Hoover vacuum? Dyson. There we go. That's a little bit more modern. Um, Dyson. Like a Dyson. I don't I don't buy anything but Dyson. Man, sorry. But we do need one. But I, I prefer Dyson. Right. But still, it still changes the game for this salesman to be able to go to the door and know that the person living inside is in the market for a new vacuum cleaner. Now, I hate connecting sharing the gospel with sales because that's weird to me. That's the sketchy part of this whole analogy. But I can't shake the analogy in my heart. You see, we do know what they need. I could walk up to every single person I encounter today and tomorrow. And when I go up to have a conversation with him, I can approach them with confidence because I have what they need. And every single person I go up to has to fit into one of two camps. That's it. They, with every single person I approach, they, they need what I have and they have either found it or they haven't. That's it. They've either already trusted in Christ or they haven't. You see how this should change the game. I can talk confidently about my church, about my faith, about the Bible with them because I know what they need because I've found it for myself, a real relationship with Jesus Christ and a, and a connection to the local church. Now, sure, they may not be willing to pay the price of a life of obedience. They may tell me no. They may have a different religion or a different faith that they're clinging to currently and not be interested in Jesus, but that doesn't change the fact that I still know their need and it should bring confidence to me to have a conversation with them. And we don't have to pay a dime for it. No marketing firms involved. But Jesus is not the only one in the story who's given us this example of what the Christian life should look like, though. Matthew, it seems from the story, rather quickly begins to invite others to meet Jesus like he has. The second statement I want us to drill down into is this, that I think is driving Matthew especially. I'm from where you're from. I'm from where you're from. Look at verse 10 with me. We're not going to look at verse 11 here, Ryan, just verse 10. While Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Now, what the picture is is that after Matthew has this encounter with Jesus, Jesus is somehow transported. We just don't get a lot of context. He's Now we just see him reclining at a table in a house with tax collectors and sinners. But if you don't know this about the Bible... Um, so we have the Old and New Testament. In the New Testament, the book, the, the the New Testament starts with four books: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of those were guys that devoted themselves to to either they witnessed it firsthand or they collected the stories of Jesus in the first century and put it down for us to understand, so that it would that it would last. And I don't know if they if they even realized it would last this long that these stories would continue. But but they were they recognized that this this story of Jesus, what he did and what he accomplished and what he taught, needs to be remembered. And so they jotted it down. And sometimes they focus on different things. Sometimes they tell different details. And so when we look at the book of Luke, who is another one of these guys like Matthew who wrote this down, Luke tells us of this same interaction in chapter 5. And he actually helps us see in verse 29 that it was, it was Matthew's house that Jesus is at at this point. Luke's going to call him Levi. Don't be weirded out by that. You remember from last week, the Saul Paul deal? We got, the same, we got a guy named Levi, but some people call him Matthew, okay? My son calls me Bubba, okay? I don't know. We all have nicknames, don't we? All right, just get over it, all right? 
But Levi is Matthew here, okay? So Luke 5, 29. I call him Bubba too, which gets confusing. We have the same nickname. Anyway, verse 29. Then Levi, so this is after the interaction, then Levi hosted a grand banquet for Jesus at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. You see this. Matthew is hosting a grand banquet at his house. Matthew didn't tell us that. But he's, he, the, the book of Matthew didn't tell us that, but he's hosting this house, this grand banquet at his house to honor this new rabbi who has changed his life, who has stepped into his life and has brought this, this new excitement. And who does Matthew invite? I love this part of the story. You see, if, it's, if Jesus is coming to your house later, if he's coming three o'clock, he's going to show up. What are you doing first when you get home? I'm getting out that Dyson vacuum cleaner that I bought from that dude at the door yesterday, and I'm vacuuming, and I'm throwing stuff in closets, right? Like, I'm trying to prepare the house for sure. But who do you invite? You see, this, this man, God convicted me so much of this. Because if Jesus is coming to my house, oftentimes we're always in this mode of trying to prove to Jesus that we're spiritual. Right? So I think a lot of people, and I, golly, I'm afraid that I would do the same. I would want to invite spiritual people to be there. Like, I would want Jesus to know that, hey, man, he's got some good friends. Like, that dude walks in a good circle. Man, it was a good spiritual conversation we had around the table. Like, that, man, he's getting a check mark for, I don't know what I'm expecting from Jesus, but like, I think this is oftentimes the way we approach it. We want to invite all of our church friends, all of the people that already know Jesus. Is that what Matthew did? Matthew didn't look through his Rolodex. Flipping through there going, who is respectable? <laughs> who in the world is not going to like use a ton of like foul language or try to steal Jesus' money? Or like, <laughs> who on my Rolodex can I invite that's not going to embarrass me in front of Jesus? <laughs> like he's not doing that. Who does he invite? Like we don't see. He just invites tax collectors and sinners. And we can assume that he didn't just invite the more well-behaved ones. <laughs> These are the ones that aren't going to embarrass me. He he appears to invite them all. We don't get any context. Now, what we don't know is how many times Jesus has invited these tax collectors before. How many times have these folks been in his house in the past? We don't know, but it could have very well happened before. But why is this one different? Because it had a different purpose, right? Matthew is just like Jesus, moving towards sinners with purpose and intentionality. Matthew's already learning this discipleship thing from Jesus that his followers move towards sinners with purpose. And here's what's interesting. How uncomfortable was Matthew having these folks in his home? He probably wasn't. And how uncomfortable were these people coming into Matthew's home? They weren't. Because he was from where they were from. His life experiences matched their life experiences. The way he spoke was the way that they spoke. The way he was treated was the way they were treated. You see this. These were his people, his associates. Listen, when we're identifying people who need the gospel, the general rule is for us to move towards places of brokenness, for us to find people who are broken and, and in need. And like, it's obvious that they're in need. And that's good. That's, that's, a, that's a good general rule for us to practice. But that doesn't always mean that we have to leave our current circle to go to a more uh, a less comfortable one. Because here's what you need to know. There are people in your circle of influence who are broken. Some of you have bosses who make 200k a year. I mean they're not broken. 
Some of you work for some of the, some of y'all work on the arsenal. Y'all work for people that have more, like have more stars on their shoulders and shit. Like it's unbelievable how decorated some of the people y'all interact with. I love hearing those stories. But five stars make a guy not broken. Some of you, some of you work in other industries and you work around people and you just think for a moment, like you think, man, they're, they're all good. Cause when I ask them, Hey, how was your week? They say it was good. Like we talk about church sometimes. They don't seem to be weirded out when I talk about it, but is, are they broken or not? Do they, are they in need or not? Here's what we need to know. There are people in every circle of influence, no matter where you're at. There are people in every circle of influence who are broken and you have what they need. But also, you're from where they're from. Like you have the same life experiences. Listen, the best conversations that I've had about Jesus are not ones where I approach somebody at the mall and said, excuse me, sir, do you know if you died today, if you go to heaven or hell? Like, I'm not downplaying that at all, okay? God leads you to do that, do that. Doesn't necessarily lead to good conversations in my experience. The best conversations I have about Jesus are people that I'm already talking about sports with. I'm already talking about the weather. <laughs> I'm talking to a guy who, I, I don't know, I, I, need, I need to have some trees cut down in my yard. This guy cuts down trees. <laughs> hey, man, that's where the conversation starts, but where does it wind up? See, this is a practice. We're going to talk about this some more. But I read this quote this week. Um, it was, I think, spot on. This is from a, a couple of guys, Wilson, Willis and Co., who wrote a book. Um, and I'm blanking on the name of Mission at work. Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> I'll look it up. Uh, we'll talk about it next week. But this is a quote from there. So where do you join God in his work? The short answer is to start where you already are. Go where you already go. Just go with new eyes. You see this? Jesus didn't go out of his way to meet Matthew. He was going where he already went. Matthew didn't go out of his way to, to, to put his friends before Jesus. He was already going there. He already had a relationship with them. Go where you already go. Do what you already do. Just go and do with new eyes to see the needs of those around you. Care enough about people to acknowledge them and have the confidence to share with them because you have what they need. And listen, let your existing similarities drive the conversation deeper, faster. I found that to be true. When you have similarities with the person, you have similar life experience, that conversation is going to get deeper, faster because of those, not because you ask them some deep theological or spiritual questions right off the bat. You see, most faithful Christians will spend a majority of their lives sharing Jesus simply along the path of their life day to day. Most often sharing with people who are like them in some way, in some commonality, and y'all, that's the best way to reach an area, a community, a street for the gospel, for Jesus, local people sharing Jesus. But we can't sidestep the fact that some within the church are called outside of that rhythm. Right? We use the term missionaries. People are called outside of their rhythm of life and planted into a new rhythm, planted somewhere different. You know what missionaries are trained to do? <laughs> They're not trained to carry their culture there. They go and they learn the culture. 
They learn where people go. And then they get in their own rhythm. I know missionaries. I know missionaries who, who are in, in, in places that would, would blow your mind. Like somebody from Limestone County is serving there. Somebody from North Alabama is serving there. Guess what they do? They get up every morning and they go to Walmart or go to the market, just like you do. They go get their hair cut. They go to work, right? They're in a rhythm in another country, and all they're doing is looking for opportunities to sprinkle in gospel conversations. Whether it's a missionary in a third world country on the other side of the world, or you right here in Harvest or Athens or wherever you live, that's what it looks like. Finding commonalities. Now, yes, these folks that are in another place, like they're not able to say, I'm from where you're from, right? because they're not. I'm from America. But they are able to say, I'm learning your culture. I'm here, and, and I see the beauty in this, and let's talk about what's going on here. They're probably not talking about the Alabama-Tennessee game yesterday, which I know is tough to bring up. I know that. But like, they're not talking about that over there. I don't think that's an issue there. They're not talking about American politics over there. But they are talking about things that are culturally relevant. That's a, it's, a, it's an inroad for them to begin the conversation and see where it leads. They form a new circle, a new rhythm, a new people. But what they recognize is that everybody in this new circle needs what I have. And it drives them. All right. Last one. Verse, or chapter 3, or point 3, whatever it's called. The third statement that drove Jesus towards others. Jesus said, I've come to call. I've come to call. Look at verses 11 through 13. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They said that a little too loud. Because when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus' disciples here are being questioned by the religious and snooty crowd about why their Messiah, why, or why their rabbi, why their teacher would be lounging with such people, tax collectors and sinners. We've talked about who tax collectors are. Sinners was, of course, a, a pretty general term that would actually include all of us, but it's most often used biblically of people who are known to be living in some sort of repeated uh, sin, especially one of a, of a physical, intimate nature. Um, that's what the word sinner often means. And so these leaders... These snooty leaders have seen many rabbis come and go in their day, and this is not how a holy man should conduct himself. That's what they're trying to get across. And they didn't say it directly to Jesus, but boy, he got ears, and he heard it, and he addresses these religious leaders by saying this, what? It's not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. And here's what I found interesting as I was studying this, is the religious lead, the snooty bunch, and Jesus actually agreed with who the well and the sick were, for whatever reason. Just struck me this week. So who are the sick? Jesus and the religious leaders would have recognized. You're talking about the tax collectors and sinners, man. This bunch, they are in desperate need of God. They are spiritually sick, broken, messed up, in need of God. They are the ones that Jesus is referring to as sick. But who are those who are well? It's clear that Jesus is not saying the snooty bunch. He's not saying to them, looking at y'all, I mean, I don't see a lot of need. Like, y'all got it going on, man. Like, y'all are following God. Like, you are, this, y'all are real disciples. This is incredible. I'm blown away. I'm not here to help y'all because y'all got it figured out. Read the rest of the text about Jesus' ministry. That ain't how he felt about them. But what he is saying, he's taking a little bit of a jab at them. 
and their high view of themselves. Jesus is saying, he's calling them well, but here's what's scary. Um, here's what's scary. Uh, the, one of the scariest things in the world, of course, all diseases are terrifying to me, uh, you know, because it, of what it can do to our bodies and how it can affect our life, especially those that I love. I hate to see uh, there's some diseases that some of you guys have dealt with and you've had loved ones deal with. But one of the scariest diseases to, to me are those that, that attack a person and they don't even know it. When somebody is sick, cancer can do this. They don't even feel different. They feel well, yet their body is sick. That's what's going on here with the religious leaders. Jesus calls them well, but he's saying that they're well in their own mind. But he knows that deep down, you may feel well, but there's a brokenness in you that's just as bad as these folks sitting around this table. Man, if there's a a Jesus-used analogy that needs to be preached in our churches today, it's this one. We need to remember that church people can sometimes act like we have it all together and that we are well. But I think what Jesus tries to get us across, and I think what Paul tries to get across later and, and Peter is that we are not. I want you to think about something. Next Sunday, two people come into our, hopefully more than two people, but two people come into our sanctuary next Sunday. One comes in, somebody who has only sinned one time this week. And they come in with a big smile on their face. And they've got it all together. And you ask them how they are. Oh, blessed and highly favored. Just loving the Lord Jesus. It's, so, you know, like whatever. Like it's obvious that they're just trying to portray to you that, they're, that that's all good. Another person comes in. Let's say they've sinned 8,000 times this week. And they come in and they lay those needs at the foot of Jesus and they lay those before their church family. Not grabbing the mic and doing it. That's weird. But talking to people in the church and letting them know that I am hurt. Like I, I, I have needs. I, now let me ask you a question. Out of those two people, which one of those honors God most? You can think about it if you want. It's do, It's dose. The second one, the latter. Somebody who's honest and open before the Lord and before their church. Do you see this family? Like if all you want out of church is a social club to talk about life, sports, and politics, there are churches that would love to have you, and I will send your membership tomorrow. We'll get it done. Because sadly, there are churches that exist for that purpose, and they would love to have you. You'll fit right in. But God has called us at Lindsay, it's called all churches, but we're trying to take it seriously here at Lindsay Lane. That God's called us to get real about life and be vulnerable with one another about our struggles, loving one another, praying for one another. And like if that's for if that's what you're here for, then this is the place. Don't leave. Because that's the place we're trying to become. Because that is what honors God the most. <laughs> And then Jesus just drives that home. So if that's hitting home with you, buckle up. Because Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. If you've got a Bible, like, uh, so my Bible, what it does is is when, when somebody from the New Testament, especially even the Old Testament, though, when they're quoting something, when one of those hyperlinks that we talk about, mine are in bold. So, so the the ones that put this particular Bible together um, were translating, and they wanted to, to make sure that we knew that. And then there's a little footnote that tells you where to go. 
This is Hosea 6. It's when Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote directly from Hosea 6. 6. Do you remember Hosea? We studied him back in February. Hopefully that's not the only time you've studied it. But, but what in the story, I need to get you up in case you don't know it. God calls a prophet, a man of God named Hosea, to marry a prostitute. To marry one of these sinners from the story. And this lady continues to be unfaithful to him. And yet God calls him to pursue her and redeem her back every time she leaves. Now, God clearly embedded in this story, it's, it's less a story about marriage and more of a story about covenant with God. God clearly has embedded in this story the principle that ritual purity was not the end all for those who desired to worship God. Here you have a religious uh, or a righteous and holy prophet called to be with a woman like Gomer. Nobody in the world would have said, good choice, buddy. Mm -hmm. God loves that. Nobody would have said that. But what was it in this moment that honored God that he did that very crazy thing? And here we have a righteous and holy one named Jesus who's sitting around a table with people just like Gomer, people who are broken and in need, people that the religious leaders didn't want to even walk in the room with, and that, and yet that is exactly what honors God. Nobody would have looked and said, Jesus, great rabbi, that's the room you need to be in. They would have said, get out of there. But this is exactly what honors God. So what's the principle here for us in evangelism? Jesus is saying this, I've come to call. Jesus was not sitting around the table here following sinful behavior of what he saw around him. He was not hanging out with them, letting them drag him down. Jesus recognized that he was there with those people who are most broken in our world, those who know they don't have it all together, want to see it fixed in their lives. He said, I will spend time with them and I will let them know that they are loved and you, the rest of y'all, can put your noses up and you can walk away from these needs and you can offer your songs of praise and you can study your Torah scrolls. But remember the words of Hosea, God desires mercy above sacrifice. God desires mercy more than he wants us as his followers to stick to every letter of the law because it is God's mercy that is supposed to shine forth from the law. See, Jesus is doing something beautiful here. He's identifying people at Matthew's home that needed to know him. They needed to feel God's love, and he didn't let tradition and social expectations keep him from doing that. Jesus didn't engage with Matthew and these disreputable sinners just for relationship. There was a purpose there. And he didn't praise the Pharisees for their rituals. He called them out. And Jesus came to call all men to repent. Jesus said, I've come to call. And, and it's a beautiful story, and you can nod, and you can say amen, you can say yes, Jesus was a clear example of that. But here's the kicker, church. He's called us to do it too. He's called us to the same calling. We too have been called to call. We are to engage with those who may be far from God with the end result of leading them to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. But we've got to begin first. We're going to talk about what it looks like in the next couple of weeks. But we need to first begin to identify people in our circle who we can engage with on this level. So through the text today, God just placed three words on my heart that I want to share with you today that are kind of next steps for you. I don't know. All of us are at different places when it comes to this. But first, the first word I want to talk with you about is pray. This may be a, a great next step for some of you. Be praying that... The pe praying for the people in your life who need to know Jesus. 
Be praying that God would soften their hearts to repent and trust in Him. Be praying that the Spirit of God would go before you as you engage with them. If it takes writing their names on a note card and putting it in your car or putting it in your bath, on your bathroom mirror, whatever it takes, pray for them. But some of you may need to pray because you can't think of anybody in your circle that doesn't know Jesus, anybody that you have a relationship with, anybody in the background, ask God to give you fresh eyes to see those in your life that you're not thinking about. Or ask Him to give you more who need to hear what you have. So that's the first next step maybe for you is to pray. The second one is look. A lot of people were passing by Matthew. A lot of people. But Jesus took the time to look at him. Jesus would do this later with another tax collector named Zacchaeus and the lady from Samaria that he met at a well. All three of them seemed to be blown away that Jesus would look at them and speak to them while everyone else turned away and ignored them. And if we are always so focused on our own agendas and our own busy schedule, we will miss the people God has placed in our path. Church, if you don't have time to look, you need a schedule change. If you are too busy to see the needs around you, shut it down. This is what God has called us to do. We must look. And the third thing, we must speak. Maybe this is the next step for some of you. Maybe you're already, maybe you're already praying. Maybe you're already looking. Maybe it's time for you to begin to speak. You don't have to be an eloquent speaker. You don't have to know everything. The Bible says about everything. We just want to have simple conversations about what God is doing in our life and how He's growing us through the, His work in you and through the local church. Sharing Jesus should be much more relational than we make it. The problem comes is if you don't have anything to share. When I say share what God's doing in your life and you go, uh, that's not good. So your next step may be to improve your communion with God through prayer, reading His Word, spending time with Him. Because it's hard for me to talk with someone about God's goodness when I'm not experiencing it because I'm running from Him. It's hard for me to talk about how, how, uh, how, how God uh, speaks to me through His Word when I haven't been in it lately. So repent of that and begin living this week more faithfully. Or it may be that you've never trusted in Jesus. Man, because you're not going to have anything to share. But today, I stand before you today as somebody who's ready to speak, somebody who's ready to tell you about how you can trust in the Jesus. I've got what you need. I'm from where you're from, and I've come to call right now to call you to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the one who died so that you could be brought back to God. Your sin separates you from God. He died, took it in himself to make a way for you to be back with him. We would love to share with you about what that looks like. In fact, we're fixing to sing another song. It's a time for us all to worship, but it's also a time for you to to process and think through what you just heard and, and what we went through together. And I'm going to stand back at the back, and if you need to come talk with me about trusting in Jesus or about any needs in your life, I'm going to be back there. You can come pray at this altar. Um, you can come lift up the needs of your, for yourself or for other people. But we want to take time before we leave this place to process through what God's Word has spoken to us today. I'm going to pray, and then we'll stand, and, and you can respond however you need to. Father God, we do thank you. Uh, God, that uh, that we have this example of Jesus um, and this example of Matthew, um, and God, I pray, uh, God, this this pastor, God, who a lot of people here probably th- for whatever reason don't think I struggle with as much stuff, or I've got a lot of stuff figured out, but God, this is an area that's weak in my life too. 
And God, I pray for not just me, but for this whole church, God, that you would help us. God, to step out, uh, God, not even out of our circles, but just to speak to those people within our circles, those we encounter on a daily basis, to find opportunities, to have conversations with them, starting at similarities and working towards the gospel. God, I pray that as so many churches, God, become and look more country clubbish, God, that Lindsay Lane East would never be that place. God, that we would be a place that passionately pursues obedience to you, God, not to earn anything from you, but God, to show our community that you are a good God who loves them too. God, help us to look more like Matthew than the religious leaders. We thank you, God, for this opportunity to wrestle with difficult truths, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Guys, let's stand and sing.